You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, John. Hi, Glenn. Glenn Lowry here at the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv with John McWhorter, my conversation partner. Uh, John's a professor at Columbia University. I teach at Brown University. Uh, we sometimes call ourselves the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. Sometimes. And we're back. It's been a couple of weeks, I think, since we talked, maybe even longer, John. I think three, yeah. And uh, we're here. Uh, and uh, the issue of the day, actually, at least in my life, I don't know about yours, is the uh, coronavirus yeah. uh, and reactions to it. Uh, the president gave a big speech uh, last night as we speak. Uh, Joe Biden gave a speech this afternoon. I don't know if you had saw it. It seems unlikely if you're at work. but I read uh, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I caught it during my lunch break. And uh, uh, your university and my university have suspended classes, have they not? I mean, mine has. Has yours not? Oh, has it happened at Brown, too? This has happened at I- Brown. Yeah. Learned about it this morning. The students are being sent home uh, we're con- we're to complete the semester by a virtual uh, contact with our students online. Uh, Same thing here. The seniors had their final classes and didn't know it. You know, I was talking to <laughs> someone. They didn't know that, you know, the last classes they had were the last ones they would have. And this is the end of their year. And what worries me at Columbia for their sake is I assume that there might not be commencement, in which case, you know, it's really it's a sad ending for their careers, but it's what we have to do. It yeah. might not be commencement here, too. Uh, do you think that uh, any of this is overreaction? Uh, is the uh, virus more dangerous qualitatively than other uh, pandemic experiences that we've had from the swine flu to the H1N1 and so on? Is the flu? have to be, it's better to err on the side of caution. And I, my gut sense as somebody who has no expertise on this is that that is what's going on here. I mean, it's hard to say whether this is a, more lethal disease than the flu because we just don't have the information. And so, yeah, until there is some sort of um, vaccine. I'm not available. Go ahead. Be careful given how this could spread and what it could do to the human population. But I must admit, I'm still reeling at what this is going to involve, such as that I'm assuming that New York's public schools might close, in which case, you know, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Yeah, let me interrupt you just a minute, John. I apologize for this, but uh, I actually have to see if someone's knocking at my door. Okay. I apologize. Yeah. Oh, you're Sarah. I'm sorry. I'm not available right now. I'm recording something. I need to be there for the next post. I'm not going to have time today. Let's do the email. I'm sorry. Sorry for that, John. That already sounds nostalgic to me that you actually had a face to face interaction with a student. <laughs> well, I think about in my class this morning, too, and I didn't expect to have to do so. Our president announced the decision at the university level here at Brown at like 9.30 a.m., and I met my students at 10.30. I was busy preparing for class, so I did not read the president's announcement. So when I went into class, I did not know. Wow. 
This was our last face-to-face meeting for the uh, semester. But you got to at least say goodbye to yours. I did. I, you know, I said goodbye. I am real. I said, you know, we had a lot of fun this semester. It's ended prematurely. Let's stay in touch. We're going to have online classes, right? Yeah, we're going to have online. I got to figure out how to do it. Uh, you know, it'll be a Zoom kind of uh, application that is uh, interfacing with our system here. So I can show my overhead slides and, you know, scheduling office hours for virtual meetings so I can discuss students' papers with them uh, by uh, Skype or uh, Zoom or something. I am dreading doing a seminar on Zoom. You know, the energy in the room won't be there. You know, it's just yeah. it's the same thing. It's really... Oh, I- I think that's right. Face to face, there's all this body language stuff and all this kind of uh, group dynamic that goes on that you just will not be able to get with uh, everybody sitting in front of a device. They're breathing together. Yeah, it's going to be a very, it's going to be a very strange thing. But you know, actually, symbolically, what knocked me out today, this afternoon, Broadway is going dark, uh, literally right now, and so there will no Broadway shows until the middle of April. That's different. I've never experienced that in my life. Well, so, it's a theater, right? I mean, you've got, I don't know, a thousand people in close proximity to one another. They're all breathing the same air and stuff. I was surprised it hadn't been discussed already. And boom, it came down today. So, now, I yeah. have to tell you, I have to tell you, as a social scientist, this interests me greatly because there's all this a mass psychology dynamic that's at work. It's not clearly rational at all. I mean, I, and I don't mean to be misunderstood. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not criticizing anybody i'm just saying this thing can have a life of its own and it i mean for example suppose you're an executive decision maker who has to decide about what to do with your theater or your workplace or your university or whatever once these dominoes start falling and everybody starts reacting with uh, you know dramatic action you're in a position where even if you don't think dramatic action is absolutely necessary based on the facts you almost have to do it in order to exactly. not be because you run the risk if you don't do it, and then you're an outlier. Of uh, right. if something goes wrong, then you're going to look like a, you're going to look like an idiot. I mean, yeah. this is why this is why the TSA will never stop opening our bags. Yeah, <laughs> because nobody wants to be the person to give the order to stop opening the bags and then have somebody blow up a plane. Um, idiot, right? <laughs> yeah, ha- actually, Columbia and Brown are following Harvard. You know, as soon as Harvard started taking these steps, I thought now Columbia has to do it so that Columbia doesn't look laggard for the parents, for fundraising, for insurance, and also for a possible disaster. Yeah. And so it's that kind of thing. Somebody leads and then everybody else has to, whether they would on their own or not. And I wonder if the perception of fear doesn't kind of get... uh, lose its mooring and, and, and become disconnected from the objective risk that are in front of us once this mass psychology dynamic gets underway. Now everyone is aware of the virus. People are, um, for example, I have a, a, a colleague who's a, a postgraduate at Harvard uh, who was going to come down here and talk with me about some research. And I was very interested in having that happen. And neither one of us, I think, are at any risk of catching the virus if we come into contact with each other. But she lives with her sister, and her sister has small children, and the sister is concerned that if she gets on a train Mm -hmm. to come here and meet with me, 
and then goes back, having ridden the train on the round trip, and then is exposed to her children, her children will be placed at risk. Now, I have no way of knowing what the objective, you know, nature of that risk is, but I'm sure in the mind of her sister, it's prohibitive. And so this meeting is not going to take place, and it's okay. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just trying to observe that I think things can get to a point where the, the, the perception of fear just kind of outstrips the reality and we become, we become paralyzed. I think the market is, I'll stop. I think the market is another example of this very thing. Oh, clear. The mass psychology of selling because you don't know exactly what you're dealing with. And then the swings become huge, quite in disconnected from the actual changes of valuation of the underlying uh, uh, companies that the securities are um, are uh, denominated by, um, so I, I, I just worry that we might end up hurting our, hurting ourselves a little bit by overreacting to the to the risk. But I don't want to be the one to counsel against taking precautions. You know, you know what else I've also seen that touches on some of our themes, and yet you don't want to you don't want to call attention to this, especially so early, but. There's a little bit with this in some people that I've seen where how carefully you're attending to this is an index of your morality. There's a little bit of a little bit of virtue signaling here where I have seen some people already taking precaution beyond what anyone has suggested. The idea being that you you get up on a soapbox and you talk about the danger. I've even heard. Should I say, damn it, I'm going to say it. I don't care who hears it. I have heard the word social justice already attached to this. The idea being that it is social justice to, you know, not get around and to do some things that most people would consider excessive, even given the facts, with the idea being that we should be thinking about people who have less money. And that is true in some ways. So, for example, if the New York City public schools closed, that's meals for a lot of impecunity. Yeah, That's social justice I get. So I don't mean that. But I've seen it used in some more fragile circumstances where there are people who are showing that they're good people by maybe attending to this more than the average person does. And I get the feeling that's normal social psychology. Now watch, there's going to be this hideous 1918-1919 situation and I'm going to sound like a complete fool. But if it stays more or less the way it is, I am noticing that there's a tendency towards that in situations like this. I think that's an astute observation. I mean, some of it is this, um, we have a collective problem and I'm a good citizen. You know, it's a little bit like recycling, ostentatious recycling. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. What are you doing? Okay. So okay. if I extend my hand to shake somebody's hand and they give me their elbow, Oh, yeah. They just won the exchange, right? Because they know that we're not supposed to shake hands. That's the way you keep from spreading the virus. My first one of those last night. <laughs> yeah. the, the flip side of this, I read something uh, today uh, online where apparently some of these crazy uh, evangelical ultra-Christian types were saying that, uh, you know, uh, taking all these precautions was like, being um, effeminate or something. It was, it was uh, like being a pansy. It was, mm, you know, yeah. uh, right. You know, anyway, so now I'm judging them for overreacting to the, yeah, uh, to the crisis or to the threat. Um, but the social justice thing is real because if the country 
uh, endures a calamity, whether it's a storm or, you know, a natural disaster of some kind, or it's something like this or war or something like that, burden sharing becomes an issue. And, you know, the incidence of the cost depend upon where you're placed socially. Some people can protect themselves very readily uh, from the negative consequences of something like this. And other people are hard pressed. They don't have sick days at work. They don't have any savings in the bank account. You know, they don't have any uh, relative they can turn to uh, for uh, support. Yeah. Uh, and so it does heighten our sense of uh, inequalities and our uh, sense of uh, the this need to take care of the weakest people in our ranks. It, it, yeah, it's an issue. Like, for that's example, legitimate. yeah, when the schools, I, I'm going to just say when, when the public schools close, you know, yeah. given the, their mother's job and my job, basically my two girls will probably be mostly my responsibility during the days. Yeah. And, you know, that's going to be a major adjustment, but I'll handle it. You know, my job is, you know, I'm teaching one yeah. class and I have writing to do. But imagine if I drove a bus, you know, or any any number of other jobs. And imagine if I didn't have a big cushion of money to bounce on for things like this and get babysitters more than many people could afford. Those right. are very real things. So you want this to you know, be tamped down as quickly as possible. I don't mean to sound callous about the social justice aspect of it there. I've just seen it used more idly. But, yeah, I definitely. Well, but more perhaps even more pernicious is the tendency of uh, all kinds of finger pointing to go on. Uh, First of all, there is the partisan conflict between uh, domestic political factions here in the United States with an election coming up. So uh, there's that. Uh, There's also the the risk of uh, xenophobia of various kinds. This idea that this is the China virus. This Mm -hmm. This is a very dangerous idea. I don't mean to overlook the fact of the virus having certain origins and the perhaps need to protect yourself from its transmission by attending to that. I mean, this uh, inscribing on China, some kind of black mark, making it into this dark space where horrible things happen, imputing motives to the Chinese Communist Party for whom I have no brief, that we have no way of knowing whether or not they are actually acting on those motives. And, you know, this kind of conspiracy theorist, uh, thing. I mean, suppose a Chinatown in one of our big cities were to be were to turn out to be a hot spot center of the infection of this virus, for, because somebody who had tra- traveled from uh, Wuhan uh, mm-hmm. into uh, uh, this uh, a major American metropolis uh, who was Chinese uh, had brought the virus along. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to imagine some kind of ugly racist. You know, suppose one of these Hasidic uh, Jewish communities in the New York uh, area were to turn out to be a center because somebody came in from Tel Aviv to, you know, the next thing you know, you've got people with, uh, we got to stay away from the Jews. All the Chinese are bad for, you know, this kind of thing. Somebody with a gun. Yeah, exactly. It strikes me that we're in an environment where that, uh, where the risk of of that is, is greater than it otherwise might be. Yeah. Are you afraid? Are you worried that we're in the movie Contagion? Or are you calm at this point? Not yet afraid about the objective health risk of the virus, even though I'm 71, soon to be 72 years old. So I don't want to get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to think I'm strong enough. I got a terrible, terrible case of the flu that made me think I was dying three or four years ago. And I don't want that again ever in my life. And I expect this wouldn't be uh, this could be as bad as that. So I don't want to get it. But I don't, re- I don't feel frightened 
that I'm uh, about to get it or that the world is going to fall apart. I do. I am a little bit unsettled, though, by, um, well, <laughs> I just said I was 72 years old. Uh, my 401k really matters a lot to my day to day planning and my short and intermediate term planning. When it becomes one third less than what it used to be. Hey, man, that real, that's real money. OK, yeah. I yeah. need the market to bounce back. Anybody listening out there? I mean, it doesn't have to happen tomorrow, okay? But, it, like, within a couple of years, you know, because I, I was really actually planning on having a comfortable retirement. You know, so, it's a, so I do work. <laughs> now I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry that that sounds so selfish, but can you blame a person? I mean, cause no. real. I worry about that. I have to, you have to watch that stuff. What do you think about Trump's handling of the responsibilities of the office of presidency? He asked in a leading fashion uh, <laughs> in the midst of this crisis. Did you hear the speech he gave last night? Yes, I did. I um, It's one of those things. I think the takeaway from Trump and handling this, I mean, you know, <clears throat> the most indicative thing is his, you know, asking things like, you know, could we use our flu vaccines to take care of this? Like he doesn't, seem to understand that each one of these things has a special thing, thing. Yeah. yeah he actually missed that and yeah. the issue is not to make fun of him but just to imagine that he's that scientifically ignorant and or you know let's say that there have probably been many presidents who came in that scientifically ignorant sure they he, have, didn't, he didn't bone up you know that he was you know it's comfortable you know saying something like that in a pretty much public situation and then the um you know, the business about well it'll be okay when it gets warm it's like something somebody would say in Little House on the Prairie or something who you know has no knowledge and just- well no, I, I think it's not completely disconnected in the sense <laughs> that the flu itself attenuates or at least some strains of the flu attenuate uh, in the with seasonal fluctuations yeah, so, all right or or but, also but I, but I, t- I take your point yeah. that he ain't no rocket scientist he doesn't know and more to the point you always notice when he says the um, the sentimental things, the things that are supposed to be about speaking to the heart, kind of gets that glassy look in his eyes. You can tell he really, he really doesn't feel any kind of compassion for people. And I don't think that's armchair psychologizing. I think that's an obvious fact about him. He's not, he's not nice. That's he's just not, he's not a nice man. And this is the person who's leading us here. This is the takeaway from it for me. There, these obituaries are already being written, saying that finally he's doing something that's going to evict him from office. And you know what? I doubt it. I think that his line of responsibility for how badly this has been going is, frankly, it's obvious, but it's not something so viscerally obvious, something that so obviously affects the voter right in their bellies. I don't think it's going to change how the election goes. I, I think he will lose very few fans based on having been scientifically illiterate and not having been interested in stockpiling for this, preparing for this when he was told about it months ago. It'll just be more Trump isn't perfect, but he's our guy. Do you think that this is a turning point and that his idiocy on this one will be different from grabbing by the pussy, different from Russia, different from everything else? I don't, I don't see it. Yeah, I, I do. Actually, I disagree with both of your points. Uh, <laughs> I think this is a mortal threat to Trump. Uh, this is not grabbing by the pussy by any means. I'll tell you why in a moment. But I also think it's a cre- it's extremely unfair uh, to uh, blame him for uh, 
quote unquote mismanagement. At least in my uh, understanding, the, it, it's far from clear that they've done a poor job in this. I think there's some indication that they're they're doing pretty much everything that they can. And I'm loath to, to second guess them and criticize them. But I want to go to the first point. This is a mortal threat, in my opinion, to Trump. Uh, I listened to Joe Biden's speech today. Joe Biden mm-hmm. gave a speech uh, this afternoon. I listened to it during my lunch hour. And he is going for the jugular, and I think it's going to have some traction. Trump is vulnerable because of precisely this uh, stereotype, I think, of him as some bumbling idiot uh, uh, without uh, any coherent sense of what he's doing. You say he's not a nice man. Oh, okay, I don't want to argue with you about it. I agree that he does come off a little snarky and supercilious and, and narcissistic, I, you know, certainly. Uh, has no compassion. It's probably an overstatement in my opinion, but I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue the point. I'm, I'm not <laughs> trying to defend Trump as a compassionate, uh, a compassionate guy. Uh, he has this um, uh, sense. I mean, if you were a cartoonist trying to caricature somebody, I apologize. If you were a cartoonist trying to caricature that this is a target-rich environment. I mean, look at the images that you put, you know, about him being jolly, about him being, you know, disgusting, about him being, you know, uh, whatever. And and also about him being stupid. I don't think he's stupid. You and I have debated this before, but he certainly has the this this uh, image uh, in mind that to which people will repair him not handling well. Therefore, if you're president of the United States and something catastrophic happens like Hurricane Katrina, and the late night comedians have been spending years portraying you as bumbling. You don't have control of the situation. There are very few things that you can control. People say there should have been more respirators in available to hospitals. There should have been more testing, perhaps. I hardly want to blame the president for the failure to be ready for the coronavirus to come around. I wonder if anyone would have been ready. Okay, we can argue this point. Joe Biden certainly didn't speak. But here's my point. My point is, Trump is vulnerable to the perception that he doesn't know what he's doing. A catastrophe befalls the country. It becomes very easy to make the issue, A, look how he's messed up, whether he's messed up or not, whether he had control or not, and B, I can do it better. And that's what Joe Biden did in that speech this afternoon. And Biden said something that I thought was really subtly powerful. He said, we have to trust the experts and not let politics be in this. Now, what is that? What is that? This is the narrative of the conflict between the Trump administration and the so-called deep state rearing its head in this area where Trump is really very vulnerable. Um, Ukraine was, is, in my opinion, in my estimation, basically about the fact that the foreign policy establishment didn't like what Trump was trying to do uh, with respect to Russia, Ukraine, and uh, whatever. And there was this there was this tug of war that was going on to which the Trump people were active participants and whatnot. And it became something that the president could be uh, accused of wrongdoing for. Of course, he was not acquitted, uh, convicted in the impeachment, but he was, but, but there it was. Uh, Trump himself has made a big deal out of the fact that he can't trust the permanent bureaucracy, the professionals and whatnot. Biden is saying, don't decide about whether or not to, curtail incoming flights from Europe based upon your political instincts. Don't decide about whether or not to inflate the economy with stimulus based upon your need to have a a good economy during the election. Let the experts decide. 
This reminds me so much of the climate change debate. Let the defer to the scientists. This Trump is vulnerable. He doesn't trust science. He doesn't believe in science. So if this thing gets out of hand, and it could, it won't be Trump's fault, probably, but it certainly will be uh, the albatross around his neck. It will be, as somebody has said, uh, Trump's Katrina. And maybe George W. Bush was rightly held in contempt for the handling of Katrina. Maybe Donald Trump will rightly be held in contempt for the handling of a coronavirus. But does, my, my point is, he's going to be held in contempt whether it's right or not. He's, he's a right target for this kind of thing. Yeah, but I think the question is the, the quote-unquote swing voter. The kind of person who voted for him before, will they be dissuaded from voting for him now based on that? And remember that there's a certain kind of person who, I wouldn't say they're against science, but their idea is that they're never sure whether they're being given the proper science. They think the media spins science. Remember how a lot of people like that feel about, say, climate change? And you and I have had a very good conversation about how one should not look down upon people who are pro-life or who are evangelical as not intelligent. But let's face it, and that's true, but let's face it, there's a strain among that kind of person, and it's a significant part of Trump's base, that says that, of course, there could be Noah's Ark. Of course, those things in the Bible could happen. Evolution couldn't possibly be right. Look at how science has gotten other things wrong. I've spoken to people like that. Yeah. So, no, I don't, that swing voter, that, that person in Ohio or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania who went Trump's way, who may have even voted for Obama, if they like the cut of Trump jib, if Trump just says that it, it wasn't my fault and the media are out trying to get me and you know, we've got it under control, he'll say, which probably will be the case in a few months. I don't know if the number of people who switched would be enough to keep him from being president if who he's running against is Biden, who, you know, may not have the charisma at this point in his life. Something happened to him two or three years ago to be a viable contender. You seem to be falling in love with Biden a little bit. Hey, man, I'm not in love with Biden. I just saw his speech this afternoon. I thought it was a pretty good speech. And it was actually better than a pretty good speech. I thought Trump was weak last night. Not the speech itself. He was reading off of a teleprompter. It was muscular in the sense that he did things that were startling, like announced that he wasn't going to allow flights to come in from Europe to the United States. with some exceptions, that's an extraordinary thing to be doing. Uh, It is an indication of the powers of that office. They are considerable. Um, But the thing that struck me about Trump last night was that he looked nervous. And that's very un-Trump-like. He looked, he had a deer in the headlights look for him, uh, to him in front of that camera, in my opinion, that that I thought was striking. His voice, his manner, it, it lacked a certain kind of confidence that I'm used to seeing in Donald Trump. And I, know I, I think he, I think it, you know, you might say he has no capacity for self-awareness. I think that's wrong. I think he knows he could be in really deep doo-doo and he knows he could be possibly in over his head. I think he's kind of trying that's to take it. measure. And the thing about Biden, I was struck by this, John, I think this is going to end up being more of a contest than I thought it would have been. Uh, because I had also bought this idea that Biden was uh, past his uh, sell-by date, and that seemed to show in the Democratic uh, primary. But this speech that he gave today, I really do recommend looking it up. Um, he was confident. Uh, I don't know if he was reading a teleprompter or not. I couldn't tell. 
He was substantive. Uh, he was on the attack uh, in ways that some, some of them I thought were kind of cheap shots or unfair. Trump is vulnerable, but he was nevertheless on the attack. Um, and um, he exuded this kind of aura of presidential <clears throat> gravitas. <clears throat> he has been there. He's been a senator for a long time. He's been at the top of American government for a long time. It showed. Uh, he was not answering spontaneously. It was not a debate situation. I guess he and Bernie Sanders will have a final face-off. But Biden looked very un-Biden-like uh, this afternoon. Good. I think it could be a tr- it could be a problem for Trump. <clears throat> Good. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> Once again, yeah, I do believe that Trump has absolutely no self-awareness. And I think that there is another analysis of that weird look that he did have last night. It wasn't that he knew he was in trouble. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't have the capacity to think that far. What was worried about what he was, <laughs> and I mean that, what he was. I don't un- agree, but go ahead. <laughs> it's just, you have to imagine, put yourself in the head of someone like him. What was worrying him is that he knew it couldn't be a rally. I mean, he sometimes had that look in other situations where he knows that it can't be him referring to himself in the third person and tossing off the laugh lines. If he knows that it's not going to be that, because he does that naturally, then he's kind of like, you know, the, the, the horse that doesn't want to walk into the unfamiliar pasture. And so he just knew that this one had to be different. He didn't know that he was in trouble because he could never admit that he was. It's interesting. I, If he loses this election, I'd be interested to see smart artists making plays, probably. A play would be better than a novel. A play about how that reptilian brain of his would handle defeat if he couldn't blame it on somebody else, if he couldn't say that it was stolen, if it was really a complete rout and a lot of his supporters turned on him and it was painfully clear that he had fucked up. How would that brain grapple with that kind of failure? Never in his life. Has he ever had to deal with anything that cognitively challenging? And I can imagine him having oh, a heart come on. and dropping dead. No, I'm serious. This Everything he does is predictable based on this model. He never does anything that's Okay, so, so let me push back for a minute here, John. And again, I, you know, I hate to be in a position of defending Trump, but I really do think this is necessary. And I want you to refute, please refute what I'm about to say. This man is the president of the United States. He's the only president we got. We need to get behind him. We need to actually wish him the best. Uh, we need to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, we need to get out of this modality of uh, Trump is Darth Vader. Trump is uh, uh, Voldemort. Uh, Trump, Trump is, uh, you know, an infant. Trump is an idiot. And recognize that, uh, let me get, recognize that our well-being depends critically <coughs> upon his performance of his function, which depends indirectly upon the extent to which we're willing, when necessary, to give him the benefit of the doubt. So let me give an example. I won't work for Trump. I won't work for this government no matter what. I'm a self-respecting never-Trumper if I'm a Republican. I'm a self-respecting member of the resistance if I'm a Democrat. I I happen to have a PhD in economics from MIT, and I happen to know a lot about whatever the issue is, but I'll be darned if I go down there and serve this government, okay? So now, so now, how many people have said that who are not died in the wool, the left wing uh, ideologues, but who simply don't want to be associated with them. Okay, depriving the country and depriving the president 
and his government of the support that they need in order to be able to keep all of us safe, keep all of us prosperous, blah, 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 blah. That's harmful to the country, in my opinion. Um, I just read this book. I'll stop by Stephen Tellis. It's in draft. It's about to come out called Never Trump. And it's a, a, you know, study of the social and psychological and political and ideological attitudes amongst Republicans who backed away from Trump during the 2016 campaign and have stayed backed away. And we know who these people are. And one of the big things is the idea that the Republican administration did not have access to the brain trusts. You know, we're talking about thousands of positions that have to be filled in foreign policy and domestic policy, economic policy, social policy, etc. did not have access to the brain trust because so many Republicans held themselves back from being willing to serve under this renegade who had taken over the party uh, because his supporters were yahoos, because he was an idiot, because he was an infant, because he was a bad person who grabbed people by the pussy. Okay. <laughs> now, now the consequence of that was to impoverish the government. Now, partly it will be Trump's fault because he is who he is, but partly it will be a consequence of people uh, not wanting to have anything to do with <laughs> not wanting to work for us, and that's not a good thing. And we need we need them more than ever right now in the public health and the <laughs> what's so funny, man? <laughs> the way you put it, but yeah. she grabber needs help. <laughs> not, not grabbing pussies. Not, he needs help running the country. We are dependent upon that. <laughs> we need to put the partisanship aside and get behind the president to the extent that we can in the interest of the, think of it as war. If we were going to war and we had a legitimate threat, all this carping about how we were being governed by an idiot would seem a little bit out of place, wouldn't it? Sometimes, Quinn, when we have this conversation, it sounds like, and I don't mean that you sound geriatric at all. It sounds like you, <laughs> oh, you know, wait, this is what I mean. You sound like you've known other dumb presidents. Like, it sounds like you're about 125 and you're thinking, well, we got through Harding or, so, or something like that. But you're not anything like 125. What president have you seen? I don't hear in you an awareness that this is an extreme. We shall not get behind a president who is glaringly underqualified and starkly incompetent. This is unprecedented, isn't it? Like This is not just any old thing. Ronald Reagan wasn't a genius, but let's face it, compared to Trump, the man was Einstein. There's a gravitas that this man... I don't believe that. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, Trump has been... Okay, we're just going to rehash the same argument. He's been very successful at a number of different things that he's done. (laughs) Ronald Reagan is Einstein compared to Donald Trump? I think that's ridiculous. How do you take over a political party being an idiot? I mean, he took the party over. Okay, he's good at something. He may not be good at doing math puzzles, although he's surely better than uh, who was it, Mara Gay and uh, who was good it? transition. Uh, uh, he, he's better than those people at that. <laughs> but 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 <laughs> as for me being geriatric, let me say that that I was born. <laughs> like what president have you known after FDR? <laughs> Like it's like you, you knew not after uh, Truman. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it seems like you think Trump is just one of the lesser ones, as opposed to an extreme. 
you know, it just seems like you knew all the presidents and you're comparing him to a bunch of people from way back. But, you know, you your first president that you were aware of was was what? Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Yeah. You go from there. All of those people belonged in the office, more or less, until this person where social media really changed the game completely. You say he took over the party, but he had been a television star. There was social media changing mores and how you present yourself and how you talk in public. All of that brought him in. And Ronald Reagan had an interesting takeover of the Republican Party. That was something. He did that. He engineered that. Whereas this person just kind of fell into it by accident. No, I I agree. Well, no, I don't think that uh, 2016 election was an accident. Uh, I don't think that campaign from the escalator down through uh, sweeping through the Republican primaries with however many 18 or however many candidates they had, or some of them very experienced politicians, and then managing to beat Hillary Rodham Clinton in a general election was an accident. Um, I frankly don't think uh, presiding over what had been until this horrible virus came along a relatively successful uh, you know, uh, administration of the, of the uh, country's affairs uh, in foreign and domestic land. I understand that this is a controversial thing that I'm saying, but I think the country was not, and frankly is not in that bad a shape, uh, is, is, the, is a sign of somebody who is, just doesn't have any talent. There are different kinds of talent. I agree that the technological change and, and the media change and whatnot had made it possible for P.T. Barnum, for a showman, somebody with a reality TV show, to get elected. Believe me, this is not the last time that's going to happen. No, it in this country. You were correct. <clears throat> so I, I agree that things have changed and that this is a different kind of president, but I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And the reason that I'm willing to do that is because I realize that he represents the hopes and aspirations of a good two-fifths or more of my fellow uh, citizens here. And that they can't just be given the back of our hands. They have to be reckoned with. The people have to be. So when he says, I want to build a wall, and he ends up getting elected, I think, and 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 I know that he's speaking for an, a not insignificant minority of my fellow countrymen who are concerned about the integrity of the country's borders and so forth and so on. I don't want to give that the back of my hand. And when he goes anti-politically correct, like when he uh, fronted Colin Kaepernick, you know, the millionaire football player who doesn't want to, you know, genuflect to the flag because he thinks the country is racist because it's killing black men in the cities. I don't happen to agree with uh, Trump's view about that. But I don't agree with Colin Kaepernick's actions either. And I know that many of my fellow countrymen uh, were offended by Kaepernick. Why shouldn't that be given a voice? There's a million things like this. There are many, many things like this. I think um, the argument about the federal courts is a fundamental argument. Trump is transforming the federal courts here at the uh, district appellate uh, level. And we know what's happened at the Supreme Court. There are, these are very, very high stakes. These things should be debated on their merits. People care about what kind of judges are going to be. He didn't make any secret about what he was going to do with the courts when he ran for president. He put out a list of the people that he was going to consider for nomination. He got elected. He won the election based on that. I'm not willing to give that the back of my hand. I I think that kind of thing has to be grappled with. So I don't want to repair to this Trump is an idiot. Let's just hold our breath until he goes away posture. Because, as I've said many times, the sky is not falling with this election, with the election of this guy. Rather, the tectonic plates underneath our political uh, uh, order 
are shifting. They're shifting in fundamental ways. Populism is something that we're seeing springing up all around the globe. Reactions against globalization, a concern about the implications of global trade for communities that don't adjust fairly is a phenomenon that everybody is dealing with. Um, and I just don't want to try to gloss it over. Let's pretend that Trump didn't happen. That's what they're telling us. Let's just hold our breath and hope that he goes away and we get back, quote, unquote, to normal. I think that's a mistake. I think the fact that he's there tells us that we are not ever going back to normal. I think that unless you deal with the concerns of the people who put him there, including some of the concerns that make you uncomfortable, they don't like the uh, woke sensibility on reparations for slavery or transgender bathrooms or affirmative action or whatever. What about deregulation? What about the fact that we're producing more oil and gas and we've become, uh, under Trump's uh, leadership, uh, much more uh, present in the global uh, uh, petroleum? Come on, the, the United States is now uh, completely um, uh, autonomous with respect to energy production. The effect on the global uh, market, yeah, I'm talking about fracking. I'm talking about drilling offshore. Uh, I'm talking about uh, getting pipelines built and stuff like that. I know, I know. We're not supposed to be in favor of these things. I'm actually not endorsing them here. What I'm saying is the guy that's doing it in an election got elected. We need to debate those things. And and not feel comfortable or satisfied uh, dismissing this guy uh, with the back of our hand. No, I don't find any comfort in it. It's not recreational all the things that you're talking about are real but they're things that just fall out of him based on childlike undigested impulses some of which unfortunately certain members of the public happen to share so for example you know the, our independence on oil yeah that has been happening but that's just based on his archie bunker sense that we shouldn't have to depend on these foreigners it's not a, it's not a philosophy you say his leadership he doesn't lead. I, I don't think that he, he's not an actor, and I don't mean a performer. I mean, he's not an agent. He doesn't do things. He just kind of wakes up in the morning, does a little bit of work, you know, tells people they're doing a good job if it basically fits in with his sense of approval. So, for example, the judges. Now, I doubt if Barack Obama could tick off the names and careers of all of the judges who he was interested in during his time. But with Trump, it's not that he had a legal philosophy. He just figured, I want, I want judges that conservatives like because these are the people who put me in office, and so go get those. That's as far as it goes. So to me, this isn't leadership. It's, a, it's an incompetent man with a few shadows moving across his brain. I think you profoundly misunderstand the nature of the game. The game the is game. about getting the game. Yeah, the political game, uh, the, the, quote, leadership game. The game is about getting elected. Uh, the, it's not an IQ test. It, it's not an SAT. Uh, it's not to impress a cocktail party in Georgetown. Uh, it's to be able to control the news cycle. It's to be able to touch the button that oh, moves yeah. people. Uh, it's yeah. to be able to give voice to inchoate feelings that people might. It's having yeah. a sense of how the culture is moving. It's knowing what a hit reality TV show it's going to be. It's knowing how to get uh, free media by uh, uh, labeling your opponents this way or that. Uh, it's seizing on opportunities. It's it's seeing around the corner. I know this product, let me finish, is going to be a hit. And there's no market for it right now, but I'm going to invest $50 million in it, and I'm going to be a billionaire in five years. And it's doing that. Um, so uh, <sighs> controlling the agenda of debate, uh, uh, finding the, the uh, 
heretofore unsayable and finding a way to say it that uh, actually uh, gives voice to some of the uh, yearnings and, uh, and, and fears and whatnot of people. Yes, fear mongering is a part of leadership. Uh, yeah, uh, selling false hope is a part of leadership. What did Obama do? How did he get elected? I'm not equating Obama to Trump. I'm saying leadership is not just cognitive mastery over technical material. It's not a Georgetown cocktail party, and I very much know that. You're reminding me of um, Gore Vidal's play from the 60s, the late 50s. uh, No, early 60s, The Best Man. And there's a good movie of it with Henry Fonda. And what you have is basically a contest between a John F. Kennedy and uh, Richard Nixon, and presiding over all of this is a character called Art, Art Hotstetter. And Art Hotstetter calls himself the last of the great picks. And he's a non-intellectual person who had a great charisma, and he led <coughs> on the basis of a lot of the impulses that you're talking about. Um, in the last version of this I saw on stage, Art Hotstetter was played by Charles Durning. So... Pot bellied guy who usually I can played envision it, yeah. That character. And yeah. yeah, that leader. And I don't think that that Charles Durning character was going to impress anybody at the Georgetown cocktail party, but he still led, even if he was working with impulses and instincts. I understand that you can do things that way. But the thing is, Art Hotstetter, even though he held his, his cards close, he was doing something. He had a plan. He could explain it in a nice little soliloquy, you know, before he dies, if you if you let him. I don't feel like Trump has a plan. You seem to think that there's a part of him that knows what he's doing. What worries me so much is that I think he just kind of stumbles along. You really think he knows on some level? Yeah, yeah I guess I do. Um, I think I have to cop to that. I was going to say, no, not like he necessarily knows, but that I don't want to say that he doesn't know. <laughs> And even I could see how twisted that was. So let me just own up to the to the thing. I mean, I don't think if I ask him to write an essay for my uh, class explaining, you know, whatever, that it would be a very good essay. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, but but I do think there's a there's a world there. So America first. OK, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, no, that's not a philosophy. It's a slogan. I, I appreciate that. It's also an impulse or an instinct. Uh, I, I think he knows uh that the uh as between America a good global citizen and leader prepared to sacrifice its own interest on behalf of ideals broadly embraced by humanity on the one hand and America as a self interested uh, how many of our jobs are being stolen by the Chinese or whomever uh, let's look out for our own people and the others can take care of themselves we put our own people first as between those two uh radically different sensibilities a um, one of them is going to be more successful at attracting a majority of support from the Americans, and that's the one that he's embraced. Uh, and B, uh, the consequences of uh, of, of uh, changing our uh, posture uh, for uh, the uh, uh, well-being of the American people well might be uh, furthered by uh, getting the uh, European uh, allies and NATO to uh, pull their own way by uh, treating the regime in Iran uh, not as a potential partner, but as a, uh, as a, a mortal threat, by uh, getting behind our ally Israel to a greater extent than we've been willing to do, by holding the Chinese feet to the fire in a way that we are, by deregulating American uh, industry and getting rid of red tape, et cetera, by lowering taxes, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, I expect that Trump has some sense about these things. He is a businessman after all. Yes, I know, a failed businessman. Yeah, uh, he is a businessman after all who has been, by and large, successful in his enterprises. Uh, I, I see no reason to withhold the presumption from him that uh, he has some if, uh, capacities to be effective in the kind of executive uh, operation that he's engaged in. And like I said, he is the president of the United States. He won the election. This is always a stimulating debate, Glenn. Yes, and indeed it I is. I would be very happy if this, you know, this actor of sorts was voted out on the basis of this pandemic, as long as the pandemic doesn't kill too many people. But, um, yeah, I don't know if we have time to do the transition that you were just. Uh, yeah, I actually think we don't because I have a, a, a dinner date in 30 minutes. I have to go home and change. And we don't want to dogpile on that one. No, person. So, so yeah. the coronavirus and Trump. Another episode of The Glenn Show with the great John McWhorter. Uh, The great Glenn Lowry. Thank you very much. Uh, We'll talk again soon, John. Talk soon, Glenn.